This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week I got introduced to a very, very interesting guest I'm going to tell you all about in a minute. But I wouldn't have never got a chance to meet Dave if it wasn't for my friend Tiffany Nelson, who I met at Burning Man way back in 2003. So lucky I got to keep in contact with her over the years. And she happens to work uh, with Dave, who is the chief innovation officer of a company called ServiceNow. Now, if you've never heard of ServiceNow, they're actually a publicly traded company that helps companies manage digital workflows for enterprise operations. Doing about $6 billion a year in revenues is a pretty pretty significant company, to put it mildly, and has been actually recognized as one of the world's most innovative companies. So needless to say, Dave Wright, their chief innovation officer, has his pulse on what drives innovation. But today we're actually going to focus on what Dave's personal views are on innovation, in particular, leaning into how Dave believes that changing perspective can be a driving force in innovation. So with that, welcome to this week's O'Ship where we'll discuss about what perspective is everything. Dave, welcome to the ship. Freddie, thank you for uh, thank you for asking me on. Uh, so, so I've been dying to talk to you, uh, you know, in front of an audience. You and I have had a couple chats now uh, in advance of the show. You just got such an interesting way you look at life, uh, which is why I was so excited about today's subject. Um, I'd love to get uh, give people a chance to get to know you a little bit uh, better first, though. So, tell me, like an innovation, or tell us an innovation that you're you're associated to that you some place in your career that you're excited about or, or proud of, proud of. I mean, it's kind of tough when when you when you have a job where you're focused on innovation. A lot of the time, it becomes how you influence innovation. So, so I don't write software, for example. I I try and influence people to to either position things different ways or perhaps develop different areas. And I think that's a that's another interesting perspective as well. I don't think in in any company that is viewed as innovative, innovation can never be one person it can really can never be one team it's got to be uh it's got to be like a mindset within the company you've got to have this innovative mindset so so i've influenced things from how we look at service mapping to to having a a a long road path convincing people around what we did with artificial intelligence uh it could be how we reposition the product to look at things from a more enterprise service level. But, but for me, it's all about trying to get everyone in the same direction and trying to get them to think about some of these new technologies and how these technologies are going to affect us. But it's, uh, I always describe it as the, the best job in the world and the worst job in the company because you, you get to see all this cool tech, but you don't, you don't actually control exactly what happens. It's all about trying to influence I think this is such an interesting angle that you know, sometimes when people talk about innovation, they think about, you know, I don't know, some engineer or inventor coming up with some new product or new service and it, or it can be, you know, uh, uh, so, you know, happen at a startup or things like that. But when you start thinking about, you know, 
advice for people that maybe are working within in or bigger organizations or thinking about getting involved in innovation at a big organization? How, how does being a force in innovation differ when you're in a big company versus, let's say, a smaller company? So, so in a in a smaller company, I suppose if we say it's about influence, you've got less people you have to influence. So, so it can be easier to get ideas through. The advantage in a bigger company is you've got more resources. So, if you if you convince someone that you want to execute, the execution is so much better because because you can pivot a big team to work on something rather than trying to get everyone to to stop what they're doing to start to think about this new thing. But one of the um, one of the really interesting things that I try and get people to think about is is most of the big innovations that people talk about today. You know, when people list all these innovative ways of, of doing things, whether people are talking about Uber or or Peloton or Netflix or Airbnb, but what they've done when they've innovated is they haven't actually invented something new the way, the way you were talking about before. What they've done is they've they've made something better than it was before they've they've made the experience so they've changed your perspective on on how you actually get that service so so what they've done is they've created something where it's so good that you'd rather go there than anything else so quite often innovation is just doing things better it's not necessarily doing things new one concept I used to find myself talking about a lot was this idea of, of micro-innovations. Is that I think sometimes when they think of innovation, they always think it's like some giant, sweeping, world-changing things. But the reality is, I, at least in my opinion, I think that 99% of innovation are like these little incremental changes that we're all making, whether it's improving experience or you know just finding little bit ways of making better mousetraps and um, and I think that's where, you know, it's when it take, you look at some of these larger organizations, it's like, it's actually that they can make hundreds of these micro innovations on an annual basis and they start to feel sweeping in their, in their uh, cumulative nature, so to speak. It, it, it's, it's true. I mean, you think, you think of the things that have really changed the way people interact on a high level. Probably the biggest, the biggest thing that changed everything was the concept of a like button which in the whole realm of what's crazy is a tiny little part of it. But that, so that light changed the way people interact with each other. Yeah, it's fair. You think it's like the, the people think about the big innovation of social networking, but it's the micro-innovation of the like button that kind of, you know, um, maybe changed how people think about it. So, yeah, so like great, great, great segue then. Uh, is, what is it before, again, I, I want to get into our subject, but I want people to get a chance to get to know you better. What are things that inspire the, the way that you think about innovation? I think from a from a work perspective, a lot of the inspiration comes from customers. So so speaking to customers and understanding what their challenges are and, and seeing where they're going. I, I also get a lot of inspiration from the field resources that we have. So all my friends that are out there speaking to customers daily, they they provide lots of feedback to me around what they're seeing out there. But the the things that are independent from work, a lot of that comes from looking at trends from what's happening in technology. So starting to to see new technologies emerge and understand what those technologies do, but but more what those technologies are going to impact us from a business perspective. But I think the the thing that really changes the way I think about things the most is probably speaking to kids, um, speaking to Speaking to children is interesting because they're not they're not weighed down by the the, the unbearable weight of knowledge. They they you know they haven't got 
a frame of reference that says what they can and what they can't do. So they tend to think about things in a much purer manner. But also because of the generational shift you have now, they just think about things completely differently to the way I do. I, I have to ask, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, Dave, but are you a big kid? Are those your cars behind you or are those your kids' cars? <laughs> uh, I'm here. I have my picture of toys, so this is a judgment <laughs> freeze up. <laughs> You can, you can you can say both when we went into uh when we went into lockdown i was trying to find stuff to to do to entertain the kids and uh ended up going and buying uh they, they weren't really lego fans so i bought these big lego kits and, and first I one we got straight them out by the way you gotta love lego <laughs> <laughs> but i, I realized i realized after i bought five of them that i was actually buying them for me i wasn't buying them for them they <laughs> they, they enjoy the building and then they just leave it I have, I have this, I have this vision of like, you know, when kids are like pestering their parents, like, daddy, can you buy this for me? But actually you're in the store and they're like, come on, kids, you know, do you want this? Do you want it? Come on. You want it, right? You want it? Make daddy buy it. Make daddy buy it now. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same with, uh, same with gaming consoles. It's, it's like, you know, Hey kids, you know, there's not much happening. Do you think we should get a PS5? Uh, I want to make sure you're happy. I want your childhood to be happy. It's just for you kids. It's all about you. <laughs> you it's why you bought them all the legacy game packs, although, you know, going back the third 30 years of uh, games. <laughs> yeah, sitting, sitting trying to convince them that, that, that Pac-Man is as good as Minecraft and you can play it for hours. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, so you, I think a lot of what you just tried to point out a minute ago is, is about, uh, I love this concept of like, look, you know, no, no one's told them what's good, bad, that no one, they don't have any reason to believe something's, you know, possible or not possible so i, I love this uh, concept of you you know we, we introduced at the beginning of the show that you know perspective is is everything effectively C- can you talk to me uh, and us a little bit more about you know what what that what that means for you and 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 how you might apply that in terms of um, innovative thinking so so quite often you you meet people who who feel they've got different problems, feel they've got different challenges. The, the first time this all, this all clicked for me was, it must have been 2013, and I was at a, uh, I was at a ServiceNow event, uh, incidentally. And, um, and I was meeting all these different customers. I was meeting people who were coming up saying, oh, how do I manage this telephony infrastructure we've got? How can I, how can I optimize the way I run my hospital or, or my challenges managing students or my challenges managing warehouses? And... I've had these conversations all day and, and I spend a, probably these meetings I'm speaking for like 10 hours a day. So, so at the end of the day, I, I need a bit of space away from everyone where I can just chill and not talk. So I was sitting, having a drink in a bar away from the hotel where the conference was before I went back for a thing in the evening. And, um, and as I was thinking, I, I realized that everyone actually had the same problem. You know, whether, whether you're thinking about, well, how do I manage medical assets or telephony assets or IT assets, it's, it's all the same. And, and how I get a computer fixed or a car fixed or, or book a vaccination, it, it's all the same thing. And what I realized was people had a very fixed perspective. So they'd, 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 they'd look at what problem they had and they, they'd look at a solution and go, yeah, but that's solutions for that area. And they wouldn't take that step back and go, well, actually, this is just me solving an issue for something that's broken, or this is just me getting something that I didn't have that I need. And, and once you get that, you realize that you can, 
you can elevate perspective to a point where it starts to cover a lot more things than than when you're too close to something. So I think the the separation from issues can sometimes make perception a lot wider than it was before. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't I don't have kids, uh, but I, I uh, uh, you know big passionately believe in in the power of perspective. I think where it's really started for me uh, was uh, I lived in, uh, you've done my fair share of world travels, but I, li- I lived in Shanghai for almost a year. And, you know, when I, when I tried to explain it to other people, when they said, well, what's the number one thing you, you learned from your experience there? And I always said, you know, one word, I said, it was perspective. And I think for, for, for me in that scenario, it was about, you know, the, the culture was fundamentally different in its core, an Eastern culture versus Western culture. And I started realizing that so many things that I just made assumptions about other people, if your foundational point of view was completely different, you just looked at things in a a totally different way. And I couldn't, and I couldn't wrap my head around how different, so so how, how different certain perspectives were. And it really forced me to start backing away from things I looked at with very clear assumptions about how something should work or whatever, and then realize like, put yourself in that person's shoes and try and have extreme empathy for it. And, and, um, and that's why I think you could argue that kids don't ha- like, just like how we have decades of ingrained societal, uh, cultural biases that impact or impact our perspective the kids that just don't have that right so or the things that drove the people that they are at the age of eight or ten they just don't have that conditioning that we have and i think it's just it's such a fascinating like way to think about human behavior it's interesting so i've never thought about that before but that you're right culture has a huge play in this and when i know obviously i I haven't necessarily lived in all these places, but I've traveled around the world and done business in a lot of places. And when when someone explains the logic and explains the the culture and the reason behind it, then then the thing that that does help you do is it helps you understand their perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, culture is a great driver of perspective. That's a it's a really good point. Yeah, it's a, I guess I'm, I'm gonna. So I think as we talk about uh, today's subject, because I don't have kids, but I but honestly, I like to believe I have a high level of empathy for everyone around me. I, I might be thinking about things through this kind of cultural lens. It'd be interesting to see where we where we net out uh, on some of the things we're about to do. So, what I what I thought would be a really uh, fun way of approaching this subject of perspective was having basically a, l- a little bit of a, uh, a brainstorm session. So, right. uh, nothing nothing less. <laughs> this is like those two tech guys. They say don't do real time demos. So we're about to do a real brainstorming session and hope that it doesn't go horribly off the rails in front of a live audience. Uh, and also worth noting, those of you who are watching live, uh, listening live, and you, you've got chat, if you've got ideas or thoughts you want to throw in the chat, and we think they're compelling, we might pick them up and address them. So feel free to, to chime in at, at any se- second. So um, I'm going to throw out some different uh, concepts of what... Uh, things that we think will be totally basic, totally different for the adults of tomorrow because the experiences that they're having today as kids, basically. And at right. the same time, I really want to make sure we don't lose, uh, let's call it side of pr- perspective about how some of these things that might look odd to us or even potentially odd uh, to some of our audience. So uh, with that, uh Dave, I will I will throw it out to you. I'm sure you have some stuff in your in your mind that could be interesting subjects. So, uh, guest of honor gets to pick the first one. So, not to put you on the spot. 
<laughs> so, so it's funny. So I've got you were saying you haven't got kids. I've got I've got two kids. One one will be sixteen this year, and the other one she'll be uh, twelve this year. So so I've got uh, effectively. Well, so this is interesting. I've effectively got two generations. I've got uh, uh, a Gen Z because she yeah, was born after nineteen ninety seven, and and I've also got a Gen Alpha, which is is effectively a subset of of, of Gen Z because she was born twenty ten, and. And the interesting thing is that uh, for for all the for all the goodwill in the world, even though we're now talking in this digital media, we're we're not digital natives. You know, we we I, I was born seven years after the cassette player was invented, so so it's not like I'm, I'm I can say I was born in the digital age, but they were. So so they were born when when technology was available to everyone. And interestingly enough, even though there's only a, a three and a half year gap between them, completely different ways that they use technology. But but the first thing that I think is interesting about the way they approach things is their perspective and their sense of ownership. So um, we were we were looking once. I, I, I'm a, into music, and and we had like some CDs lying around, and they were they were looking at CDs and. And I thought we were going to have the conversation, oh, you know, what's a CD? But we had the conversation about why why had I bought the CDs? And I said, well, I, I, I bought the CDs so I could I could own the music. And they said, well, why, why do you need to own the music? Why why don't you just listen to it? So so that's interesting in itself. I love that. I love that. It was it wasn't even about the media. But it's like an existential question about about the subject, effectively. Yeah. Well, well, why why do you need to own it? Because they've been used to just consuming it whenever they want it. That goes that goes through everything. I think that that concept of of ownership, whether it's people needing to own cars, whether it's people needing to to own devices to make things, or whether they just use maker communities, Apple TV, Spotify, Netflix, Uber. It, it's all about the the service that's being provided it's not it's not about ownership even even to the point now that i think it's funny even even the things that you buy digitally you know you might buy a movie on apple tv you don't own that movie even though you bought it i mean it's it's a different way of of thinking about on their platform effectively if you stop using their their platform then you effectively haven't got the ownership i wonder if these kind of things uh, not not to put any kind of negative slant on the future but you know, I think as we continue to move forward in time, scarcity may become becomes an increased you know issue on some level. And I wonder if like the need for at least in terms of physical assets and things like that, I wonder if like that that sense of ownership becomes even less less important to people of the younger generation because they, no one needs to feels the need to just own it in totality. And also that might drive costs down. So if costs are going up, the shared ownership theoretically drives costs down as well. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna counter that, but I'm I'm yeah. I'm I'm gonna counter it, and 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 perhaps I'm gonna perhaps I'm gonna argue myself out of an argument. Um, <laughs> Go for it. It wouldn't be the first time I've seen someone do that on our show. So, so you were saying we, we've just, I've just I've just gone out then and said people don't feel the need to own things, and, and you were saying you were talking about scarcity and, and does that affect price? So, so the interesting exception to all this then becomes NFTs. Because now you've got something that is a piece of digital media that people do want to own. 
So, so people are going out and buying NFTs, so they're the only person who has it. And we can, we can talk about the logistics of whether they really own it. But, but when I said that, when that thought came to my mind, I wondered whether the only people who are, who are buying NFTs are people like us. I can't. I can't imagine my kids buying an NFT. So, so maybe it's a it's a different generation that buys them. Yeah. Or like a, some a collectible. But that, you know, maybe it's a mindset around and more around art than it is around. Maybe it's things that people feel that there's like you know inherent inherent value in versus. Uh, and this may be the thing about perspective. It's like when you start thinking about a younger generation um, rethinking how. Um, uh, you know, what's, what's important to own, you know, things like uh, a car may be commoditized to them. It's utilitarian. So maybe ownership becomes less important around utilitarian things, maybe things that have um, creative value or are passionate, you know, anything that's related to an artist or something that they love, you know, you start taking, putting the big L in the things. And I think that reshuffles perspective as well, which I think is, is quite interesting as well. Um, cars, yeah. cars are interesting. Just to touch on cars, because yeah. you brought it up. Okay. When you, when you, when you think about the the perspective of of ownership of a car, it's much more, as you said, it's much more about the service the car provides. But it's interesting to see car manufacturers are even starting to look at that now. Car manufacturers are looking at. You see some of them looking at how you can upgrade the software over the air. But I, I know I've been speaking to companies like like Fisker, and they were talking about being able to do physical upgrades to cars. So so when when new components come out, can you have a, a dashboard that can be swapped out? Uh, and, and that comes down to the longevity of cars. And I think it's because people are thinking that that people might want cars for longer because they're not but they don't want to buy the new car for having the new car. They want to buy the new car for having the new features or the new functionality. So I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm literally considering buying a new car because I want Android Auto to work in it, right. and it's like it's pathetic. But like I'm not. I keep talking myself off the ledge, by the way, because I'm not quite that crazy. But the fact that I'm even thinking about it means other people are pulling the trigger. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so, I agree. Uh, segue a little bit. So a, a moment ago, we were you know, talking about the the kind of the kind of like button, and I and I think there's uh, you know a, a, a concept of this kind of like real time interaction or or feedback that is common with with youth today. Do you have a take on that? So I I didn't have. Well, actually, there's one there's one experience that changed the way I thought about it from a work perspective. Um, but yeah. but it is interesting to to note that there's. If my if my kids post something on social media, you you can sense uh, you can sense attention uh, until it's liked, and and I know I, I know I've had both of them say to me occasionally, "Oh, did you uh, did you see that that post I put on Instagram?" And I know that's them saying to me, But but the thing that the thing that freaked me out from uh, going back to a, a perspective of work was. Having a conversation once where I was speaking to my wife and my, the two kids were in the kitchen. And um, I said, oh, this, this, this month, I think this quarter, it must have been the last month of the quarter. And I said, oh, you know, I, I get my bonus this quarter. I was t- telling my wife I get my bonus. And, uh, and my youngest kid said, what's a bonus? And I said, well, it's like a, it's a reward the company gives you for doing a good job. Um, and she said, so it's, 
So it's like a really big light. And I said, well, kind of, but, but, uh, but you know, there's, there's cash associated to it. And then I said to my wife, but, but after this, we're going to move to yearly bonuses. And, and my oldest kid said, well, you've got to wait like 12 months to find out if you're doing a good job. And I said, no, no, you are, you, you know, you're constantly having meetings with managers and they're, they're telling you if you're doing a good job. So, so you've always got that feedback loop and it's, it's just a way of controlling behavior. And she said to me, well, well, if you really wanted to control, if you really wanted people to know they were doing a good job every day, why don't you just give them a bonus every day? Uh, And I was like, yep, that's, 100% 100% correct. If you, if at the end of every day, someone sat down with you and said, this, this was really good. That was really bad. Do more of this, do less of that. Then, then you would, you would be on that path. And she, it was, she thought it was ridiculous. Even when we had quarterly bonuses that, that you could go in the wrong direction for 12 weeks and then find out at the end of that 12 weeks, you weren't doing the right thing. But you know, what's so interesting about this, this concept is like, I think we, you, in the corporate world, you hear people talk about continuous feedback and things like that being kind of, you know, corporate lingo. But I think, I think what you're saying is when we think about it through perspective of, of people from a, a new generation is like, yeah, the, the speed at which they are interacting with media, interacting with everything around them, basically, that's like they try and imagine what we're doing. And then it's going to feel slow, basically. And then we need to like 10x that or 50x it or whatever to make it relevant to their world. It's fascinating. And on some level, I guess, you know, youth, and we've been experiencing this for a while, but I think even more so the youth of today, it's like you're actually perpetually getting these feedback loops all the time. So I think think one of the things when you talk about perspective and you talk about these kind of change behaviors is, we don't necessarily think about it this way of certain, you know, certain generations, um, but this is actually ingrained into their their culture um, every yeah. day, and it's going to have a profound impact on how they uh, behave and operate um, as adults. That's really interesting. So I got one for you. Uh, I think that there's a, I'm going to call it a concept of of collective intelligence, and what right. I mean by this is I think there is. A, a behavior today that, that uh, people basically used to are less inclined to need to remember anything. I think you see it in the ways that you know changing how people are you know being taught and study you know study that the memorization becomes less important because basically there is this giant instant repository of knowledge for everything. I think it becomes more of like a uh, like a training around, like how do I uh, f- search, filter, and sift to the right information faster, so I can have instant access to information. Um, and I think that that, when you start thinking about how this is going to play out in the future, and again, I'm just, I'm going to mention some things that I know don't exist today, but I think we're really on the precipice of, you know, when we're starting to look at potentially augmented reality and things like that, that basically start removing the friction between how we access information in a real time basis. I think this idea that like we all become almost like a little bit, it sounds like we're becoming less intelligent by not knowing this stuff on demand, but I would argue humans and the adults of tomorrow become super intelligent because they get really good at basically accessing this collective intelligence we can all get to. Does that sound crazy or what's your take on that as an actual dad? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I think, you know, 
think especially when you, you know, even if you think of it from a technology perspective with, with some of the work that Elon Musk's doing around Neuralink, that, that, that concept of, of being more connected and, and not needing mm. to, to necessarily know as much does, does get interesting, whether that's looking at how it connects to a nerve system or, or looking at how it connects to data. The, the interesting thing again to, to go back to kids is, is, is watching how they interface to things. So, if someone says something, let's say we're having a conversation, even a conversation now, now on this this video session, and you say something and I don't know what I know what what it is, I I could effectively Google it and find out. They'll they'll do it conversationally, so they're much more happy with a voice interface. So they will they will just give it the whole hey Google Siri whatever what is, and they will just ask the question, and the question comes back with an answer. Mm-hmm. And to them, that that's exactly the same as them asking me something. It's it's almost like the, the that source of knowledge is is just like asking another person a question. They don't they don't seem to differentiate. We're learning. We have many a debate settled at the dinner table with us where it's like we'll be talking about something, and then one of us just yells something out <laughs> to one of the speakers in the house as uh, a question. I, I, another crazy question for us. A bit of a tangent, but you know what we what we just talked about was I think this this willingness basically that or this this change in how basically people of a younger generation basically acts access information and their perspective on what knowledge is important to retain is probably very very different i think at the same time there's a big trend out there where i would also argue that basically people young, younger generations and every subsequent generation is increasingly comfortable with sharing more of themselves on the internet, on in in social media, so I think this. I think privacy. People say they care about privacy, and they're paranoid about people tracking them. But at the same time, we're all increasingly sharing more and more of ourselves up onto the web and so on. And so, my my, my question basically is: you know, you hear people talking about things like Neuralink and and potentially like machine interfaces, you know, to connect to the web or things like that. I suspect that if uh, you took a poll of, you know, let's say people in their 40s or 30s or whatever, and asked, would you be, would you ever consider doing some kind of Neuralink-like interface that meant you could search the web in real time, that you would see a huge, huge jump with younger generations being like, yeah, that's fine, because I think they're more comfortable with a sense of privacy and access, in this case, literal access for you to give your brain, and it, and it plays into this shifting perspective of if they're all about accessing information faster and in quicker real time, that this just removes even more, more friction around that. Like, uh, follow. <laughs> so does that sound crazy to you? Or do you think that is a, a, a you know, a potential shift we could see in, in future generations? It, it, it is interesting. I mean, so, so I, I, I agree with what you're saying that, that you would see this generational preference for being permanently connected to the internet would, would go down when it was younger. And it's probably, I think some of it's probably, uh, again, going back to what we said before about the, the younger you are, the less tied down you are by, by the recent knowledge. Uh, because probably the older you get, the more fear is that, that your, that, that data link isn't a one way thing, that, <laughs> that although you can ask for information, you're never aware of what information is being taken. Yeah. There is, I do notice a difference between, my, my kind of 12 year old and 15 year old that 
that, that even though you were saying, hey, the, the younger people are prepared to share more, the younger one of the two actually shares slightly less than the older one because she's seen she's seen things go wrong. You know, she's seen mm-hmm. information be used in wrong ways. So she's a mm-hmm. she's a little bit more conscious about what she shares. But but I think it's interesting. You know, I suppose this is one of the drivers for for Web three point zero. Looking at looking at how you start to control that data and how you release it. And I think it. I, I thought one of the most Fascinating projects was uh, that I'd seen recently was was Tim Berners Lee's solid project where where mm-hmm. he was looking at how do you build a, a a digital token where you control the data that's in it because because right now I think what's happening in the digital world is what's what's happened in the physical world so let's say I want to go and and buy alcohol somewhere and I get carded I mean I haven't, I haven't been carded for thirty years but but so, so I went in and someone said hey are you are you twenty one I'd show them a driving license and, and I'm not just telling them I'm 21. I'm telling them everything. I'm telling them where I live, my height, my eye color, my date of birth. Uh, when all yeah. they really know is, are you 21 or not? So, yeah. so having that concept of being able to give people the information they want rather than much more information is something that we've, we've always done physically, but, but I think we started to do it digitally as well. So uh, it's an interesting line. I think we're all going to have to figure out um, over the next few years. And I, and I, I can't, it's a great point you make about uh, you know, your younger one kind of holding back on things. You, there's something that I think is, is easy to, I think, misunderstand when you start to give out these, you know, the, we, we start to, as, as people who are, I don't, I hate using the word futurist, but I know you and I both like to think forward thinking about what's next and what's out there and, and so on. And I, and I would argue that I think people think progress is this kind of line that, that's kind of doing this. But I think there's this, there's, it's like, there's basically like, we, I feel like as a group, we tend to go up, then we almost pull back a little bit because we realize we screw some stuff up. And then it's like, and then, you know, and so there's like a little bit of a pushback because we're like, oh, that, that didn't work so hard. But then I do feel like it kind of dips and it goes back up again as people kind of start to work the kinks out of the, the system. It's almost like that, um, you know, that uh, kind of classic, like, you know, early adopter. And then you've got with the trough of disillusionment, people, the people who jumped in early and then kind of go, oh, right. I'm sure that was not good. Um, I think that, <laughs> that, that, that that is like a general concept with a societal change, um, because I think there's always some kind of pushback there. It'd be interesting to see with your youngest of that kind of pushback around privacy. Is that is that something that sticks uh, with him or her forever? Or is it, you know, is it something that, you know, like I said, it, it's like a cautionary feeling they've got it at one step. So, yeah, very interesting. I, I mean, I think uh, one of the other reasons I just feel so, I, I feel like people are going to keep sharing more and more of themselves is I think, the, and this is a great example where like things have gone wrong. I think, you know, we, we keep share we kept sharing more information, but the value exchange was wrong. And what I mean by that is like, you know, the value exchange, for, for example, until recently, was great for the advertisers. Not so, not so sure. It's great, you know, for all the people giving up that information. And I think right. basically, you know, that we'll start seeing the information being used more for like personalized experiences. You know, uh, just a better understanding of you, so you get better digital experiences. And I think people go, "Oh, I'll share a bit more again." Uh, but you know, we're going to keep figuring this out, and hopefully, we don't screw it up too badly <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, so. Uh, I'd love to ask you what's uh, what's your take on uh, you meant you mentioned kind of a ga- gaming earlier uh, and this sense of ownership 
you know, you talked about, you know, kind of wanting to buy a console uh, at some point. Um, do, do you think, you know, do you think it's about the devices anymore or do you think it's about, about the content? Because we're seeing, we're seeing more and more of these gaming services now all just, you know, I think Microsoft and, and PlayStation are starting to deliver everything to apps that could be on smart TVs. I mean, it's, I'm starting to wonder if like the console generation that, you know, it, it, war is even, is even over. Yeah, I suppose with uh, with kind of ubiquitous access and with network speeds now, there's, there's kind of less need to to have that processing power remotely. You might still get for a while the the, the console manufacturers might still use exclusivity as as a way of of keeping things in, but then 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 it just becomes a balance. You know how how long is it worth keeping it exclusive to get people to buy that console? As opposed to letting the entire world use it, and yeah, and, yeah. and that, that kind of balance comes in. I think I think gaming's interesting. So I was uh, I can't remember whether it was a magazine article or it was a, a podcast I was listening to the other day, but someone was saying that uh, the whole concept of uh, gaming and mental health that that gaming had become the new meditation, and I was no, that's you know surely people aren't meditating with games, and then I I thought about the the massive kind of adult rush for people playing things like Candy Crush. And, and I think it is that all of a sudden it's like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm going to immerse myself in something that's useless for, for 20 minutes, but I'm not going to be distracted for 20 minutes. I'm not going to think about anything else. So, so maybe, maybe there is something in it being a, a formal meditation. I, I, I actually look, I, I said so last weekend, I, I just moved to North Carolina for those of you following uh, O'Ship. And my my, uh, my closest friend was up visiting, and we went on a hike, and we sat by a waterfall. And he said, "Look, I've got really into meditation lately. I'm trying to do it every every day." And we sat there for kind of you know 20 minutes or so, and listening to the water. And he was teaching me how to kind of when my mind started to wander, to focus on my breath and to count my breaths and focus on the counting. If I if I kept going too ADD, frankly, and my mind wandering, and uh, and it was wonderful on a side note and something I, I think I should lean into more. But I mean, as a guy who also is quite passionate about gaming, I actually think on some level that, that what gaming does is it focuses your mind. And I always, you know, kind of half joke that I'm not clever enough basically to play video games and think about work at the same time. So I do think there's something meditative about it in the sense that like, I, I you know, I just, you, you, they're, they're engaging enough that they do focus your brain. Maybe it's not the same as a, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the zenning out with the Dalai Lama, but I do think if it stops you stressing out about you know what a prick your boss is or something for for, for an hour, then good on you. <laughs> so, so, so I, I want, I want to, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Dave. I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I've got an interesting one because we were, we were talking then about um, about meditation and thinking and that that kind of you talked about being distracted by work, so. So I wondered whether another, just another thing to throw out there around around perspective and what might change is, do we think, do we think careers will change because because now you're 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 at this point where there was I think it was the uh, the Stanford Center for for Longevity released some new figures the other week where they say that fifty percent of the five year olds alive today will live to be a hundred so. So, so you've started to see this increase in longevity, and and I've noticed uh, um, the, the first time I noticed it was uh, I, I interviewed someone from a, for a product management job 
maybe like five years ago. And um, guy was straight out of university, really, really wanted the job, really interested. Said, uh, said, hey, Dave, you know, I like you. I, I like your company. I, I really want to work for you. And uh, I'd be happy to give this like three days a week. And I was like, what, what do you mean? It's not about three days a week. It's a job. You know, it's it's going to be five days a week. And, and he, his view was that he'd benefit and that both companies would benefit if he worked for one company for three days and another company for two days because it, it increases experience. It made him more efficient. It's, it's a compelling I, pitch. It's, it's part, part of why people work with external agencies or consulting firms because they want that diversity of experience. So there is, there is a, a solid argument there. Or, or whether people start doing doing retraining, you know, whether you wh- whether this is a generation that might do something for fifteen years and then might do something completely different for for fifteen years. Yeah, I, I you know I, I can I can only dream about how this one's going to roll out, but I, I definitely think that the concept of work is 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 fundamentally changing. I'm actually uh, working on uh, this is the first time I've ever mentioned it on the air. I'm actually wor- working on a book about rethinking some of the ways that, that people do working models and business models. And I think um, you know, it's, it's like an evolution of this kind of gig economy. You know, people talk about kind of portfolio careers as a, as a subject that I think is, is really interesting. And I think what that, what that person was asking for is that. And, you know, you, you look at like how we used to talk to kids, uh, uh, you know, even 10, 10 years ago or longer, you know, it's about picking picking a career, and I think a lot a lot of kids would say, well, the, you know, they had multiple things they did, and we always wanted to try and push them into one swim lane. And I think that you know that is not probably the future, and and maybe uh, you know may, maybe we can now indulge the kids kids saying, I want to be a, I want to be a, a, a you know fireman and or you know what I mean, I want right. to be something and 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 maybe and I think you'll find seeing parents going, great, we should do that. And here's how yeah. you do it, and I think that's something that wouldn't have happened in the first. I, I mean, I, it, I mean, and, and to be honest, that would be cool. I'd love to do something yeah. some days of the week and, and other things another day. <laughs> exactly right. But but it's um, it's I suppose it's a lot of it's down to how you actually how you actually manage that. One one of the things I, I've been talking to people around was how long will we employ people to do jobs as opposed to employ people because of specific skills they've got. So almost, could you have a could you have a gig economy that sat within an enterprise, almost like a distributed autonomous organization within your company? So, so when you had a piece of work that needed to be done, a, a document to be written, a, an event to be coordinated, a presentation to be created, to actually throw that out to an internal community in your company and have them be able to take that work based on how difficult it was, what the timescales were, and actually have them race each other's work as well because then then the, the reason this came up was uh, I really wanted to learn Photoshop but I didn't have a reason to learn Photoshop and I thought if there was if there was someone out there that wanted something doing and it was pretty simple I, I could take that and do it and give it back to them and that would allow me to to gradually start learning something new because I had the counter argument where people say well if you do a gig enterprise, all the people are going to do is be good at one thing, but I, I actually think it's a chance for you to learn to do other things as well. The problem, the, the problem with this is that the hyper specialization, I think, is a great way to build a lot of value for yourself. But what happens is, if there's a shift and you're so hyper specialized that what you've done becomes redundant, 
then you're in right. a lot of trouble. Um, right. And I've, I've talked to you know many people uh, throughout my career who been put in that predicament. And it's really sad, actually, when someone's an incredible expert at something and they weren't they weren't able to find the opportunity to basically learn these new things because there was no diversification in their skill set. Um, so, you know, I want to be conscious of time. I think this is a, a, a great place to jump off. I, could, I had a million other things I could have talked to you about today. I think we need about six more episodes of this with you, Dave. So this is a, a really fun episode for me personally. I could chat with you endlessly. We have to meet in person for dinner or beer sometime. I would, I would really, uh, really love that. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Dave, real quick, uh, if people want to learn more about you or, or, or find, uh, find you, you know, where should they be looking uh, in social media or things like that to kind of follow your adventures? Yeah, you can, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, if you go to Twitter, my handles are the right view. So you can, you can see some awesome. of my tweets. Uh, <laughs> when you, when you got the handle, were you like, uh, so, so, so the story, I'll tell you the story. The story, I used to work for a company called VMware and VMware yeah. had a virtualized yeah. desktop product called View. And yeah. when I was registering for Twitter, when I was 15 years ago, I, I, I thought I may as well use the word View for the desktop management software and, and tested the right View and no one had got it. So I took it. Awesome. I love it. So, well, uh, again, follow Dave on Twitter at the right View. You can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, for those of you who uh, are uh, tuning in uh, live or whether you're watching us uh, on any of our uh, post-recorded shows, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, thank you so much for watching and following. We really appreciate you tuning in. The best way you can do to support the show is to basically give us a like, give us a follow, tell your friends. Again, this is not something we do for any other reason than just finding great, smart people that um, we want to have great chats with and share that great content with you. So thank you again for your time. And uh, always check us out at oshipshow.com. You can see all the other great ways you can engage with us. Uh, Dave, thank you again. I had great fun today. And I look forward to meeting you in the person in the near future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The O Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O Ship Show.